Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. We are looking at basically the first five verses of chapter 10. And I'm looking at the personalities of the disciples. In each of the personalities, you see the provision of God. And that's what we are doing going through these. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Father, let us see these men for who they are. They are no different than any of us in this room. There are no superstars. There are no highly educated. There are no published men here. These are common, everyday people that have the same weaknesses and the same personalities, the same characteristics as every one of us. Father, there are times that these men were optimistic. Father, there are times they were extraordinarily pessimistic. And yet, Father, that is each of us. Lord, I pray as we go through and we look at this, we understand that there was nothing at all special about any of them as with us. And yet what you did in your power and your provisions is the same thing that is used in each of us. Help us to hear this and to know this and take confidence in this. In Christ's name, amen. I want to read a verse to you, a couple of verses just after this. Matthew is my favorite book, total book. Here's the reason. The book starts off with his royal heritage. He is king. And he rolls through the entire book showing that he has authority over everything. He had authority over death. He had authority over disease. He had authority over the weather. He had an authority over everything. There was nothing that was not in his command. Nothing. He could create. He could defy the laws of nature. It's all in there. And then he concludes, All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them the things that I have shown you. That's why I like that book. Because it says this is his royal lineage this is how sovereign he truly is. Therefore, go. Okay? And you see that's what he's doing here with these men. These men. But I want us to think about something. Because if you read this, it says he summoned his 12 disciples. And then verse 2 it says, in the name of the 12 apostles. Right? Disciple is the learner. 
Okay, apostle is a sent out one. You have to be a disciple before you will be sent out. Okay, I I shared this before that. If you look at first John, John describes spiritual maturity. You have spiritual influence. You have spiritual young men. You have spiritual fathers. One of the things that is amazing is spiritual infants are like puppies. Cute as a button. Just adorable. Okay? And just everything is exciting to a puppy. Okay? But they tend to wee-wee all over everything. Okay? And that is the way a new believer is. They are excited. And they don't even know why. But they are excited. Spiritual young men, on the other hand, those are the ones that all of a sudden they've got a whole bunch of information. And they tend to be extraordinarily annoying. Okay, because all they want to do is share with you their information. Okay, it hasn't really set into them. It isn't really controlling them yet. But it's, I have the facts. And they run around with, I have the facts. And you just sort of like, oh, gee. And you end up cleaning up more messes than anything. And then you have the spiritual fathers. They have the information and it is woven into their nature and their soul. And you see the reflection of Jesus Christ in the person. Okay? That should be our goal. We need to get the facts. I prefer spiritual fathers go out. But the tendency is the puppy or the young man. And you wonder why everybody's mad at the church. Well, this Christian just came out and wee-weed all over my leg. Okay? Then then this other Christian came up and beat me ragged. Okay? And, 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 And the spiritual father says, come, let us walk together. Okay? And, you know... So that's the difference. So I want to show you two verses that immediately follow this in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 10. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciples that when he become like his teacher and the slave like his master, if they called the head of the house Beelzebub. You know what Beelzebub means? Ruler of demons. They called Jesus what? What he was doing was in the power of Satan. Okay? How much more will they malign the members of his household? If they called the head of the church a follower of Satan, how much more? Will they call his household? But remember, the disciple is not above his teacher. Not above his teachers. So what we've looked at is two sets of brothers. Okay? There's never any sibling rivalry, is there? Two sets of brothers. I mean, how would you like to be Andrew? Andrew's always called Simon Peter's brother. That's how I'm noted. I'm Simon Peter's brother. Well, you must be Andrew. Okay? Then you have Peter, and we all... It's funny, because if you ask people who they feel like they more relate to, most people will go with Peter. And I'm sorry, but most of you don't. 
Okay, I mean, God bless you, but no, I, I don't. I don't see that because you know what? If you watch Simon Peter when he was around Christ, he was amazing. But if you give him a little gap between him and Christ, he was Simon. <laughs> Back to his original name. And he was so flaky that John's gospel always called him Simon Peter. I don't know if he's in the flesh or he's in the spirit. Okay, It's sort of like, I remember one time years and years and years ago, before I was ever even in church leadership, there was a test that they took on spiritual gifts. To date, now I know spiritual gifts a little better than... I completely disagree with the test altogether. But basically they had, here's what you, such and such spiritual gift looks like if it's in the flesh, and here's what spiritual gift such and such looks like in the spirit. And it was funny, everybody was picking their spiritual gift on how it looked in the flesh. And I was like, what's wrong with that picture? <laughs> Something confusing there. Okay, I do not believe that God will empower a spiritual gift in the power of the flesh. So I don't care what you try to call a gift of prophecy looks like in the flesh. I share this because there are times that we... The Great Commission is not to make converts. The Great Commission is to make disciples, to make learners. Why? So God will send them out. All right? So it is imperative for all of us. Do you know what this book says? Jesus walked around to the experts of the word of God and looks at them and says, have you not read? And it's funny because in our society today, we read all kinds of books about the Bible. But we don't read the Bible. And I'm trying to figure out, you're either very trusting or very, very naive. So you have these two brothers, James and John, also known as the Sons of Thunder. I'm thinking that's not really a compliment. Okay, when you think about, Lord, should we call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritan village? Just doesn't sound, I don't know, it loses something. But we also see Philip and Bartholomew, both of those were studiers of Scripture. They were under Roman oppression, and they were expecting God to send a Messiah, a Redeemer, an anointed king back to Israel. And that's what they were expecting, was a king, a earthly king. But today I want to look at Thomas. Thomas. Listen, a true follower of Jesus Christ. You know, people get mad at me, and I, I can, I tell them that it's not that hard to spot somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, now I'm going to give you my secret. All right. Hear how I can tell if a person is a true follower of Jesus Christ. A true follower of Christ will have an intense desire to be in Christ's presence. That is second to nothing. It will be more than his wife. It will be more than her husband. It will be more than their children. It will be more than their job. It will be more than their education. It will be more than anything that is on this planet. I want to be in the presence of Christ. 
That's how you can spot it. And usually you can talk to a person for just a very few minutes and know what they're fixated with. Thomas had an intense desire to be in the presence of Christ, to be close to Christ. Normally, when we think of Thomas, what comes to mind? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. We think of Thomas as the one who was a little more pessimistic than the rest and just doubted everything. But the truth of the matter is, he characterizes something that should mark every true believer. An intense desire to be with Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you're diagnosed with some type of horrific disease, what is your first response? As a Christian? Most of us pray for healing. How, what does that say about your desire to be with Christ? You ever thought about it from this perspective? God says, look! The finish line. You ever thought about that? It's kind of a different perspective, isn't it? If you would, please turn to the Gospel of John. Chapter 10. I want to show you something about Thomas. Most of us think about doubting Thomas. I want to show you, but see, what happens is, we don't read prior to, okay? John's Gospel, chapter 10. Thirty-nine and forty is where we'll kind of move into this thing at. And, and if you back up to 31, you'll see. See, what happens is, in verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Okay? You know what that means, right? You're looking at me, you're looking at God. Okay, because everybody says, well, <laughs> Jesus never claimed to be God. Huh. <laughs> what does that verse say? I and the Father are one. Just an idea. What happens? What's the response? Just outside of Jerusalem. Jews picked up stones... Again, to stone him. All right? So, you can read through it. The Jews answered him, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you are being man, make yourself out to be God. See, but Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right? Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, do they say to him, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, 
you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So he just turned the world upside down on. So what happens? Therefore, beginning in verse 39, therefore, they are seeking again to seize him. All right. And he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. All right. And then if you read on, many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him. Okay. So basically what he did is he escaped the Jews who were trying to kill him in Jerusalem. And he went down on the Jordan where John was, had been baptizing. All right. Chapter 11. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. All right. Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem because the threats on his life. They were staying near the Jordan. All right. And Jesus received word. That Lazarus was sick. And Lazarus was a very, very dear friend. But it says here, It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with uh, ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So it gives you an idea who and the intimacy that was among this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. All right. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. All right. Now, Jesus delays returning. Okay. You know why? He didn't want to heal him of a sickness. He wanted to raise him from the dead. All right? Raise him from the dead. Okay, now, Lazarus was in Bethany. Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem. So when Jesus decides to go, his disciples were very concerned that this was suicide. He has already infuriated everybody in Jerusalem because he claimed to be God. Okay. Verse eight of that chapter, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to going there again? What are you out of your mind? All right. But drop down there to verse 16. Something that you may have overlooked. Therefore, Thomas, also called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, what does he say? Let us go so that we may die with him. That's a pretty strong desire to be with Jesus, don't you think? 
I mean, the disciples have got a real standard attitude. We, we shouldn't go back there. I mean, they just about got us the last time we were there. And you've got this bad habit of turning over the table of the money changers and running off everything and just making everybody mad. And then your last trip, you tell everybody you're God. Okay? I'm thinking this ain't a good idea. But I also see in Thomas here a pretty pessimistic attitude also. Well, we might as well go back and die with him. I mean, that's, that's not optimism there. I don't care who you are. But his courage was on the amazing desire to be with Christ. He didn't care whether it was life or whether it was death. See, an optimistic attitude would expect this is going to be great. The grand entry of the king. Remember the Hosanna courses when he rode in on the colt? Rah, 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 we're with him. And the whole city erupts and says, Hey, the king of David! But now he's saying, let's go in. He said, but they're going to kill us. Listen, optimistic, if you're going in for the best, how easy is it to go? You ever thought about that? Always make a joke. Let's start a church in Barbados. Sounds good to me. I think we ought to fight all of our wars in Barbados. Nice, cozy, palm trees. Be awful nice. I watch people who say, well, I want to take a ministry to such and such a place or such and such a place or such a place. I remember a group that uh, of a church that took a youth group down. They were going to build the foundations for a hospital and the foundations for uh, a church building that's going to be hooked to the hospital. And they did it all in five days. And I was like, that's miraculous. He said, yeah, and we water skied for seven. That's wonderful. Hallelujah. See, Thomas expected the worst and yet was still willing to go. I remember when I went to Azerbaijan, I, you know, I get picked up at the airport for a guy who speaks about as good as English as I do Russian. And so it's a very short conversation. And so when I get there, my interpreter meets me at my hotel and he says, here's the things you got to do. And I knew I was kind of in trouble because when I got into my room, they've got a prayer cloth facing east. And then I opened up my little closet thing and I got like three prayer rugs that I can pick from there. And I'm like, oh, okay, so that's east and there's my prayer rugs and I'm good to go. He says, if you've got a Bible or any Christian literature, you put it inside your luggage inside of your closet so nobody sees it. When you go over to where you're teaching, make sure you carry your Bible or whatever materials you've got that they can't see it. And I thought, wow, okay, no problem. I can do that. And then I realized I was between the Ukrainian embassy and the Iranian embassy. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, boy, girl, this is a good neighborhood. Okay. It seems 
what I see here, what I believe here, Thomas could not bear the thought without Christ. He would rather die than to live without Christ. Okay? This is very evident. Move over just a little bit in John's Gospel, chapter 14. This is part of the upper room discourse. He's getting ready to be arrested shortly after this, verse chapter 17. And he's explaining to him what is about to happen again. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, verse 1. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And I know the way where I am going. Now stop right there. Got the guys in the upper room. They're all listening. All right. They're not putting the dots together yet. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Thomas didn't understand what in the blue blazes Jesus was talking about. And he was about to be shattered. He's going to leave this upper room, cross the Kidron Valley, go up to the Mount of Olives, have a time of prayer. Jesus is going to be arrested, tried and murdered by dawn. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but where is it? And how do I get there? I'll go ahead of you. I'll wait. That is a person with an overwhelming desire. I want to be with you, period. He didn't understand what Jesus was doing. He did know. He did not want to be separated from the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Can you identify with that? Can you actually look and say, you know what? I don't care what happens. I want to be with the Lord. Period. End of sentence. No negotiations. No compromise. I have written in the front of my Bible, all of my Bibles. Find one of my Bibles and it says this in the front. Then you'll know it's my Bible, whether it's got my name in it or not. No reserves, no retreat, no regret. Okay? Listen. Is Christ... Now listen, I don't want you to think about your spouse. I don't want you to think about your kids. I don't want you to think... I want you to do a heart search right now. Every one of you. Is Christ... Such an integral part of your daily decisions and activities that life without Him is unthinkable. 
That's Thomas. Do we love him so much we long to see him? Thomas's passion is because that when our doubts will be replaced with hope, Thomas's doubts were replaced with hope. Thomas's passion was to be with Christ. Every breath he wanted to be with Christ. You know, it's it's amazing to me because there are no stars in the disciples. You know, well, uh, you know, he played major league baseball or he played National League football, or he did this, or he... Nah, man, his guys were (laughs) yokels. And you know what? That grouping that Jesus called out offended, even angered the authorities. And the Jewish audiences. Think about that. We do that today. We still do that today. Well, who's the speaker? Is he published? I meet with pastors here in Castle Rock. They've all written books. That's cool. I'm still trying to get through this one. And ask me, well, have you ever been published? Uh, I did a coloring book once. No, I have not. I haven't done any. Listen, when Jesus Christ was crucified, Thomas was shattered. Here's the man who says, you know what? We go back up there and heal Lazarus. They're going to kill us. But let's go die with him. And then to have him arrested and taken off like he was, and then beaten, and then crucified, Thomas was an emotional wreck. There's no doubt in my mind. He loved the Lord so deeply and always wanted to be with Him that He was willing to die with Him and now He was gone. Let me show you something else. I hope I get rid of your doubting Thomas mentality. John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 25, 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Okay, this is when Jesus showed up in the upper room. Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord! But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and place my hand on his side, I will not believe. Now, we give Thomas a bad rap here, because you know what's amazing about this? None of these people believed in the resurrection until they saw him. They were told from the beginning of his ministry that he was going to die and raise again on the third day. And they can hey, poor guy, until he's been out in the sun too long. And yet, all of them said, we have seen him. And Thomas said, I will not believe until I lay eyes on him. Because you know what? When he's talking to them right here, the disciples who had seen him. What were his emotions? 
on a man whose basic principle for existence was to be in this man's presence. I don't even understand the emotional turmoil that Thomas was in. And you know what? He didn't want any more pain. He says, I need proof. And yet we label him what? Doubting Thomas. Remember, none of these disciples believed in the resurrection. You know what? I've learned in my life as a human. The majority of people are pessimistic. Okay? There's only a handful of optimists that I've ever run into that I would say are definitely optimists and every time you run into them, they're almost annoying. Okay? You know why most people are pessimistic? It's easier. I don't have to get my hopes up. I don't have to get my hopes up. There are some, though, that I would call um, compulsive doubters. They uh, pride themselves on it. But let me show you something about what we call doubting Thomas. Jesus shows up in the upper room. And I want to show you something. Because we always talk about doubting Thomas. Verse 27, chapter 20. Jesus said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Okay? Jesus understood the pessimism. Well, let's be realistic. I'll ask all of you. Have you seen anybody raised from the dead? All right. I'm just curious. You know what is amazing about doubting Thomas? Look at verse 28. Jesus answered and said to him, My Lord, my God. Sure didn't take a lot to sway him, did it? What a confession of faith. Instantaneously. Just like that. Listen. Thomas, as with all of us, struggle with doubt. He did not understand what Jesus said about his death and resurrection. He never put together that they're eating the Passover lamb for the very last time. We don't have to celebrate this anymore. We have the Passover lamb. Thomas wasn't there with the others when Jesus appeared in the upper room. Now, I want to share this and I'm going to close with these thoughts. A couple of things. Thomas failed to understand God's word. He failed to put two and two together that the Passover meal was God passing over by the blood of an innocent offering. 
Go read what we do when we celebrate the Lord's table. This is the blood of the new covenant. Not the old. With the symbols and the shadows. This is the new covenant. He wasn't understanding the word of God. Okay, that was the first thing. Second thing. He forsook the company of the believers. Okay? These are the two most common mistakes that will always, 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 100% of the time lead to doubt. I don't understand the word because God has blessed men to be spiritual teachers empowered by the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of the infants. And then we hang out together so we can encourage each other how to walk. If you want to see Jesus Christ in the world today, where do you go? Church. Church. So why would I forsake that? But the people that I deal with on a common basis that have doubts, are pessimistic, are the ones who do not understand the word because they're not under biblical teaching. And secondly, they forsake the fellowship and they don't have a clue. Thomas wasn't there and he didn't understand. Nor if you're not there, you will never understand. And you will be a doubter. That is God's provision. You know what God's provision to Thomas was? And I, I, I want you all to grab a hold of this. Jesus does not condemn us when we doubt. He has given us His Spirit. He has given us His Word. And He has given us the manifestation of His body. Fellowship of His people. And that is what strengthens us and encourages us. Prayer and the Word. See, I I try to tell people, if you pray, it will lead you to the Word. If you're in the Word, it will lead you to pray. You don't separate the two. And then you have, don't forsake the fellowship. Don't forsake the fellowship. I have heard every excuse under the sun. There's no no new ones. We don't understand. Listen, church is for sick people. It ain't for perfect people. It's for people to be learners so that they can be sent out. Do you want to change your doubts to hope? Be under biblical teaching? Don't forsake the fellowship. Thomas is living proof of that. Thomas started off with an intense desire to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he forsook the fellowship, he didn't understand. And he became a pessimist. All right.
Let's pray. Father, thank You for Thomas. Father, I, I hope that we realize that he's been given a bad rap. Father, I pray for everyone who is here today heard these words. That they'll have an intense desire to be overwhelmed by the Lord Jesus Christ. That in our actions, our attitudes, our decisions, we focus upon You and Your kingdom. Father, we desire to be with You. We would be overwhelmed by Your presence when we're there. And that, Father, that presence would thrill us in such a way that we would cling tight. Help us, Father, in these strange, strange times, though You've seen them before. Help us. We have forsaken You in so many ways, in so many avenues of our lives. And yet, Father, today, You don't condemn us for our doubts. But, Father, You actually strengthen us through that time. Help us, my King. In Christ's name, amen.